0: Welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralised digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you interesting guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Linda Monsees alongside uh, resident Blockchain Hub member, Dr. associate professor, I should say, Chris Berg, on crypto politics, encryption, politics and democracy. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Kelsey. So today we're really taking the conversation back to some of the definitely the roots of blockchain technology by looking into encryption, which is this kind of fundamental Uh, element of of blockchain and a lot of other things we do on the web and on the distributed web. I'd love a broad uh, introduction uh, as to what sparked your interest in encryption technologies and how you would explain this to a first-time listener.
1: Yeah um, thanks uh, again for this invitation I always love to talk about encryption Um, and it's really hard to say how I first got interested I always, I think, like math and technology. So the question might be more why I study politics. So I'm not sure about that. But I think one article I read in the context of I think 9/11, like a few years later, was this idea that um, some terrorists, and I'm not sure if that's even true, I, that's just what I remember. They used rather than sending emails, they would use like an encrypted like a web brow- um, email browser. And so they would just save drafts in a GMX account or something like that and then read the drafts rather than sending the emails because actually the encryption there is a lot stronger. And so I was always aware of that like aspect and it's such a weird story, but for me that was so interesting. I was like, oh yeah, and that's really, that's really interesting. Those are so many interesting questions. Um, and then I actually read um, the novel by um, Cory Doctor doctoral little brother and um, if you have like some young children or teenagers in your life um, I think it's a really fun book about um, yeah surveillance and privacy and it actually explains a lot about encryption Um, so this is what might spark my interest and then I realized political science don't talk about it Um, and what encryption does is basically it allows you to either hide the whole message or conceal it in a way that it makes it unreadable for other people. So for instance, um, maybe as a kid, you used milk ink to conceal a message or you have this really easy algorithm, or so-called algorithm that you exchange a letter in the alphabet for a number. So A becomes one and B becomes two. That's, we've probably all done that as a kid and that's probably the easiest encryption we can think of. And of course, in a digital age, These algorithms are a tiny bit more complicated, um, but the principle is still the same, that you can send and store data without anyone having access to to it.
0: And what was it like coming at encryption from the social science or, or political science perspective? Like, What are some of the methods that you've used to investigate this space?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not a technology person, so I have to know my limits of what I know and what i can actually learn and so what interested me more was the debates around encryption um, so i did a discourse analysis which is kind of like a standard method for political science i would almost say um, so to really get at the narratives around encryption and um, how experts like technical experts actually present encryption as a political technology um, so that was basically my starting point to really understand how experts think about technology
2: Linda, I think one of the things that I really loved about your book was um, that integration between, or, or maybe just a contrast between the way experts or uh, might talk about these technologies and the way um, we talk about it in a political context. Um, so, and I think I think the comparison you made is that there's there's a political idea of what encryption does on the one hand, and there's a sort of technocratic vision of what encryption could do, or it could make a an apolitical or non political space. Um, It reminded me actually, and and I don't know that this is in your book, but when we were debating encryption in Australia um, uh, under the Turnbull government just a few years ago, um, Malcolm Turnbull, the uh, the Prime Minister, um, was uh, debating whether um, we should be able to, uh, whether the government should have access to encryption, a sort of key escrow um, model that you describe. And he pointed out, well, The laws of Australia prevail in Australia. I can assure you that the laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the law, the only law that applies in Australia is the law of Australia, referring, of course, to the idea that, well, you know, a a lot of people in the technocratic side of this um, space say, well, but but encryption is just maths. Uh, I don't think that's the way most people in politics um, think about it. But Could you sort of explain how you came to that idea and, and where you first saw that difference between the technocratic vision of what? cryptography and encryption can do in the political one
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's a very difficult issue and like kind of multi-layered because i think i mean sometimes i would love to talk to these politicians if they really believe what they say because i'm still not entirely sure on the answer of that question because i think they know that it's a bit more complicated um and I think for a lot of early, like they called cypherpunks, so like people who cared about encryption in the 90s, it was always a political idea. So I think um, at the beginning I had to convince political scientists that it's political, but I think for the technological people it was always political because they were aware that this really is the tool that provides you anonymity, privacy, but can also provide complete surveillance. And what I then find interesting is that that political science still then pretends as if these technocrats are not aware of the political character. So they sometimes flip it around and present themselves so, so we are aware of the politics, but these other people are not. I'm like, no, 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 everyone is really aware of the political character. It's just how they then make specific arguments about it, that's the distinction, and I think that it, when it gets really interesting. So when then maybe some politicians say, you know, we can have backdoors because... We are the good guys, and if we have backdoor, no one else will use it, which is technologically speaking a stupid argument, Um, but politically it still works, because it works with narratives we all know, like good guys, bad guys, and of course we can trust the state, and of course all the terrorists and pedophiles need to be surveilled, and and so on and so forth, and so I think this is where the interesting aspects are happening.
0: Yeah, so you've highlighted this tension which you really point out in your writing between, I guess, encryption as a a state technology or tool and encryption as an individual tool. Can you perhaps take us back to uh, kind of the origins of, of crypto and then some of the controversies that you map throughout your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think actually it's it's such a good way to understand the early debates, to understand where we are at the moment. So in the 90s, it's so-called crypto wars. Maybe some of you have heard about it already, some of the listeners. And it's this idea that encryption became more and more popular because the World Wide Web and network technology became this thing you could also use for commercial um, features, you could use for administration, military purposes, then, of course, it becomes more important to secure that data. And encryption for centuries was always a military technology. So there was always this idea that the state controls encryption and has regulation on it. Um, Like the German Enigma machine is, I think, probably one of the most um, famous ones where it's completely clear that the Germans tried to hide basically the machine and how it worked because this allowed them to communicate securely. Um, And then, of course, with globalization through the Internet, the whole thing gets a bit more tricky because then how can you actually regulate, like, you cannot have your national encryption standard because you need a global version. And this is where it all went down, basically, because, of course, people like um, Phil Zimmerman, like one of the early main figures in this whole thing, um, to make to, to cut the story a bit short, but basically he uploaded um, uh, an encryption algorithm, encryp- encryption on the internet, and of course then it's global, right? So he didn't really export it, but well, then it was a global thing. And so in these nineties, there were a lot of debates if that should be allowed, and because, I've, in my assessment, I think because of commercial actors, such as eBay at that time, um, who really needed this global encryption standard, who needed strong encryption. Um, and because of pressure of civil liberties organization like the ACLU and so on, um, this regulation became less and less strong in the US and as a result, kind of in the world um, and the state then tried, okay, we can't really regulate the export, but maybe we can have our own backdoors and this is the debate which continues basically since the 90s in different versions um like this idea that the state should have like one access to like maybe your facebook messages your whatsapp chat or uh, whatever you have um to then in case of like usually the example of terrorism and pedophiles should access this communication um, there are different versions of that in the 90s. I think that's something Chris already pointed out, this idea of escrow systems. So basically a way where the, how the state can retrieve these key um, the keys for encryption and then have the ultimate access. Um, and so in the 90s, it was such a political debate, mainly in the US, and it kind of died down. Ninety eleven came, so they were all like, that was just a whole different debate. And today I think we can see similar debates about state access, but with a much bigger focus on like Facebook and Apple and all these big companies. Um, but the political character is still there and it's still very visible.
2: What's fascinating about it is the intertwining between the commercial demands for encryption and the state dem- both demand for supply of and opposition to encryption standards. Um, uh, and and you, you, you point out um, very compellingly the um, deep intertwined nature of, say, the the, the US National Security Agency um, in developing encryption standards that it then releases to the public to be used in commercial settings, that it also simultaneously um, uh, doesn't want to be used in too many commercial settings um, and doesn't want to be used under certain use cases. So there's this idea, I think, in many encryption circles that there's the the private sector or the individual versus the state. But they seem so deeply intertwined, just on the production and consumption of encryption.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really think that this idea of like we have a private companies, individuals, and the state—that division really—it doesn't. It works only so much in the debates on encryption because it's also intertwined, and the like, and you cannot have secure communication for one and not the other. Um, yeah.
2: Where where do you see? Um, the uh, debate traveling from here. Um, it strikes me that we, we're we now the better part of a decade, if not more, down since the um, resurgence of the encryption debate in, say, 2005, 2006 or so. Um, there seems to be, or it strikes me that there seems to be a stalemate of some description um, uh, that yeah, every generation of attorney general and, um, uh, and and national security advisor declares that they want to crack down on end-to-end encryption, but um uh, the technology just keeps being adopted and developed with very little capacity for the state to push back. Is that a fair assessment or um, am I am I wildly optimistic?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah I mean, I think there's some kind of stalemate in the sense of that. We've heard all arguments like I think there's I'm not sure if there are really much new arguments, and we've we've been through that now two or three times. This is why I'm sometimes wondering if the politicians what they really believe or if that's just a campaign slogan that's why I really want to know yeah um but I think the new or the new version is this idea that um the big tech companies like Apple and Facebook they have a responsibility, and I think after Edward Snowden it was all this they tried to whitewash maybe themselves and be like oh but we never cooperate with the state and a lot of i think encryption these companies implemented a lot to get users back right to 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 have this new idea of trust and i think now we can maybe see some new ideas of like they're responsible for like giving the user the possibility for end-to-end encryption so maybe this is like a new idea that's coming there and especially i think uh, the EU tries to hold, like not only in encryption but also in other areas, to hold these companies more responsible. Um, but I think also that it's important to keep in mind that while in the '90s maybe the U.S. debate was very central, um, for instance in China and India, there are still strong regulations on encryption, and like you cannot have very strong, like you have to basically apply if you use want to use strong encryption. And in non-democratic regimes the question of like securing your messages is like really a way more important question than in germany to be true to be honest like for me it, it might be nice if i want privacy but it's probably not a question for me for life and death but in other regions of the world it is so i think it's also really important to keep in mind that it's a global issue, and because all actors at the moment use digital technology, it's a question that's relevant for all. And I think there are some good initiatives bringing encryption and secure technology and also the knowledge how to use it to the global south. And I think that's uh, super important.
0: Wow, you've expressed um, some extremely pertinent uh, issues and, and really clarified, I guess, why this area is important. I think by way of taking stock for those listening, so what we're talking about is mathematical algorithms that allow uh, communication to be hidden, revealed or, or shared to a particular party and and not others. And you've really talked about the origins in sort of national security and, and sort of military and defence settings and then the making access to that public through um, sort of PGP, you mentioned Phil Zimmerman, but that pretty good privacy, which was um, what a lot of those cypherpunk-type characters talked about through the 90s and what the crypto wars were about was around who gets to have access to these algorithms to to conceal and reveal messages as they please. Uh, Chris asked about the debate today and where it's going. I'm wondering what your opinions are on how COVID-19 has also influenced this debate.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, what I found interesting is, uh, what I found interesting is, like, I mean, not about per se, I've never, like, I am, um, like, but about privacy, I think it's interesting where all these people out of a sudden I had a lot of privacy concerns like in Germany for a while we had to like you know when we went to a restaurant like put down our name and address and people were outraged about it where I was like well you give your address through to Uber and all the other things so I found that interesting and but it also showed me okay when it comes to privacy we need more dialogue about um, like pros and cons in certain circumstances um, so yeah, that I thought that struck me as very interesting. That I was like, okay, so now with like the restaurant question, if you leave your address there, that's that's the privacy debate we have at the moment. Um, and also with the um, with the Corona app, I think there were also a lot of um, privacy debates, which I I found sometimes i was like, okay, maybe that's not even the, the question we should debate at the moment. Um, I mean, not because it's not always important, but I think uh, sometimes I think. Arguments about privacy were made that not really applied to that application at all. Um, so that struck me as interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have the feeling at the moment, as with all crises, it's usually used in a way to empower the state. I mean, just based on past experience. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's good, like good in quotation marks, uh, uh, for the fight of privacy. Um, to have these global crises, but I'm not sure if it has direct impact on encryption It's Let me think about it. Maybe I will come back.
2: It's, it strikes me that there's a, I mean, it, it is a massive digitization of um, uh, parts of the economy that aren't ne- that were not necessarily that digitized. So, if you send the entire white collar population home and tell them to do all their work by video conferencing. Um, uh, just so much more becomes digital in a way that it hadn't before. Um, and uh, it, it, and one parallel might be to... I think one of the interesting things about the development of the latest rounds of the encryption wars is that the Snowden revelations were the spark for so much of the... Um, uh, so much development of end-to-end encryption and private messaging services. Um, and I wonder whether... Um, the COVID experience as we discover how, um, how deeply intertwined our lives are, how, how digital is basically at the absolute center. We'll start that, you know, a second order conversation about how can we be more secure. Uh, in, in, recent, in recent weeks, everybody's been moving from WhatsApp to Signal and Telegram precisely because of announcement that WhatsApp had made. I wonder whether that's just going to speed up and the frenzy is going to be faster again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you talk about when you asked me about COVID, I kind of completely blanked on that. Like, yeah, sure. That's the whole aspect of like digitization of work. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just my very subjective idea that people are aware that it's a problem. But then and I speak here for myself as well for teaching and so on like you go to I will not name the name but the most convenient that always works and probably has the worst security because it works and if I teach I I need 25 people with camera and microphone access and I can't like shut down at five times um so um the convenience argument I think is such a prevailing one and I mean I'm not like yeah I'm part of that I would never be like uh do that and it's actually interesting if you talk to um like i talked to a lot of like activists that work on encryption trying to to teach other people about encryption even they say no like pgp is too complicated so pgp for those of you who don't know like one part of it is you have private key and that private key you have to keep and you have to keep it secure at all costs so what you usually do you put it on your usb stick and you cannot lose that usb stick once you lose it you kind of have to start from you know. And it makes the system very insecure if we all lose our USB sticks all the time. And even these hackers are like, yeah, I don't use PHP. I always use, lose my USB sticks. No way. So I think the convenience argument is a big one. Um and I think we should maybe stop also framing it as like basically the human person is like, you know, sometimes called the weakest link or like too stupid. Um, because the
0: technology has to work fast. Um,
1: and, yeah, I guess the yeah, other point just on COVID maybe, um, and
0: digitization. A service that allows video conferences how, you know, even more really works part of our everyday, whether security. we know it or not. Encryption actually is, and and that's I guess again why it's important. Um, I like that you mentioned uh, keeping your uh, your private key secure, and that still sounds like this ephemeral thing, but really it can just be a, t- a twelve word. Um, seed phrase so it's keeping 12 words and not sharing that with anyone Uh, but to the point about uh, some of the hackers that you've spoken to uh, your work has not only looked at sort of national security but also as I previously mentioned that idea of individual security can you talk a little bit more about uh, crypto parties and kind of what your investigation entailed and perhaps what surprised you as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I in my first project I looked very much on like national security and like these more or less open political debates. And then I did more another project which was more interested in the perspective of people like either activists like hackers like I use that term, I'm not sure if they all would identify that, like hackers, activists who organize these so-called crypto parties, which are basically events where people can come and learn about encryption, internet safety, privacy, and they were actually invented in Australia. So <laughs> I'm sure you know more about that than I do. But, um, so I went to some in Europe, of course, um, and I talked to these people. Um, and it was it was very interesting. I think these people are very engaged and really try their best. They're super aware of how complex the whole thing is and how intimidated it is. It is for a lot of people. So I went through one which was um, because like access kind of a problem. So there was one crypto party which was only at like as at women and queer people and non-binary people and um, there, a lot of um, women express this like I would just feel overwhelmed I don't know where to start, so they see the advertisement and they know cyber security is an issue and they kind of know that they do things wrong. But they don't even like there's just no knowledge and then they become so in- intimidated that it's kind of disempowering and I think. Yeah, there's usually a session which is just about like, use a strong password, start there. And like telling them like, oh, if you don't open weird attachments, that's already good first step. Like, and they I think a lot of people also do some of these things and they're not aware, like, actually, if you don't click on weird attachments, very good. Just they like, keep doing it. And uh, there were a lot of sessions about like how the internet works, which sounds so silly, but i think a lot of people have no clue about how it works and then you just feel overwhelmed um and like kind of not in the position to to judge these things and then you wait for someone else to tell you what to do which is usually not a good thing <laughs> um so i found that such a great initiative um and uh, yeah really interesting and well, and then COVID happened so yeah that um was the end of that ethnographic research <laughs>
0: Well, no more parties, but more online.
2: That, that Just to, to follow that, that's that's one of the big challenges in this space, that it's easy to get, and you know, of course, so we work in blockchain and cryptocurrency, um, and it's easy to get terrified about the possibility of your cryptocurrency being hacked or losing your private key. And I, as an academic researcher, can look up studies of um, how researchers in Tel Aviv managed to jump across an air gap using the sound of the fan to read someone's private key. And that, and that, is, that is genuinely horrifying. Um, but it's not really relevant to most of us in most of our circumstances. And, yeah. it, and I'm, you know, when I think about my personal privacy needs, when I think about the personal privacy needs of most people, um, it's not protecting yourself from the NSA. Maybe it's just protecting yourself from uh, an employer Maybe it's protecting yourself from just not sharing something with friends and family, not um, being overly reckless. Maybe um, if someone's in a um, situation that they need to hide information or money from their partner. And those are vastly different requirements for encryption than they are to defend against the National Security Agency. Um, And I think just communicating that is important.
1: Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I think in that way, hacker, activists, experts sometimes also don't do the best job by maybe they they have a lot of specific knowledge, but maybe you don't need to overemphasize that all the time. But sometimes you have to know, like, see, there's a lot of things people can learn. And um it is like it is a bit tricky, but it it's doable for all of them. And like at these crypto parties, for instance, most people I talked to, they stopped teaching PGP, which is the the more, the safest way to send emails I think no one would agree with that but they were like yeah but people it's too difficult and people are not like not doing it right and then it's actually a waste of time and it's just frustrating so a lot of them are like no like uh, we we tell them other ways of like to at least increase the security of their emails um, and just don't teach that anymore and then of course some people would say like this is a complete wrong strategy but for most of them are like yeah but i can't teach someone pgp um if they are not super willing to spend hours on it and of course having friends who also do it because it only works if everyone uses it um and i use pgp for it for a while but it's yeah since i'm not in circles where everyone uses it that it doesn't make sense so then it's like the question what's the right tool for these people at these circumstances that's yeah again
0: convenient enough <laughs> Yeah, these multiple levels are really interesting because on the individual level, like we're talking about people at the crypto party, then encryption is conflated with individual privacy, but that's not necessarily the case in all sort of circumstances. If we zoom out again, uh, what do you see as sort of the geopolitics of encryption? So... I mean, your your work is sort of specifically related to um, policy and, and policy makers. So what are the kind of conversations that you're having at that level? I think, yeah,
1: we have this one level where it's really about the individual who, you know, like I think that's a realistic scenario that Chris mentions, like I try to hide some money or I don't want that my medical files get read by someone or maybe my employer should not read my emails, something like that. Um, or that everyone should have access to my facebook posts um, this is one level and on a more geopolitical level I think this these debates play a role when we talk about the responsibility of big tech companies I think that at some point has already by now a geopolitical dimension um as we can see in EU policies like to to regulate them um and of course there's this other aspect of um I think especially after Edward Snowden, the secret services and this idea that states like spy on each other and like especially the European states were of course all outraged and super surprised that the NSA was spying spy on them. Um, and so it has certainly um, a, a geopolitical dimension, And but we can again see these same arguments, this idea we can have encryption that protects us from the NSA or like that protects our um mps from international espionage um, but it's still the same algorithms are then can then be used by um law enforcement um to track down some terrorists or something like that and that's like technologically not possible so i think even though it's on the same on a different level the arguments are still the same this idea like we can have an encryption system that's safe for us but unsafe for others which is just not possible Um, yeah. So I think it's on a different level, but in a way, lots of similar arguments.
2: It, it, that, that point has always killed me about this debate, particularly as it played out in Australia, but obviously around the world. Um, the, it, my argument or a contention that I might make is that, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest security problem we have as a society, as a country, is cybersecurity problems. Cybersecurity is an enormous cost to the economy. It's enormous burden on individuals and specific businesses. Um, uh, whereas at the same and 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 cutting down the ability for businesses and individuals to use encryption dramatically decreases their capacity to to secure themselves in 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 um, digital commerce. But at the same time, we're told that cracking down on encryption by the government is for our security. They're undermining probably our biggest security problem in order to pursue security just because and and to your point probably just out of ignorance because they don't understand how large that problem is um it's incredibly frustrating anyway i just wanted to share that that's all
1: yeah yeah yeah. i mean I, i share the frustration that's why i would always love to know if if like who actually believes that argument um because i mean there is yeah
2: So, so I actually do. I, I will tell tell stories out of school. I have spoken to a number of um, uh, incredibly senior policy makers in the national security space um, in this in in past years, and I have been struck how little interest they have had on the standard objections. Um, this was particularly in the context of um, you'd be familiar with uh, European data retention policy, which we have um, in Australia as well, where you've got to keep. Uh, it's two years, I think, of um, data about the websites you visit and all that sort of thing, and the IP addresses you communicate with. Um, and it really struck me how little interest they had in the sort of standard, the, the standard objections, the, the obvious objections to these policies. Um, and and because they're hearing it from the other side, right? They're hearing it very much from the security agencies who can tell a really powerful story about the the risks and dangers there are. And how if they just got more access, they would be able to prevent those risks, uh, those those dangers from eventuating. Um, and uh, and and the idea that a whole bunch of tech people are upset about a little bit of encryption uh, doesn't really bother them. So I'm 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 quite pessimistic on on the policies. I don't. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Maybe I just think like by now I would should be aware like that these arguments are just that, that's just not how the technology works. But maybe. Maybe I'm overestimating them, but yes, yeah, who knows? I don't know. Um, but I mean, they were like I think in 2016 there was this like number that the um, that the FBI like and it, I mean I think no one thinks that this was coincidence like consciously um, inflated the numbers where they say like that breaking encryption actually helped them in any kind of law investigation or encryption like prevented them because I think that's the narrative, like, oh, if there's strong function we can't, there's no other way to get that data. But usually if you're if you're the FBI, there are other ways to get that data. So um, so I think there must be a way of it. Um, but still these arguments don't die and therefore, probably not die for another decade or so.
0: So I guess a question to both of you what is what is good policy in this space or what are the possible kind of policy levers i guess that that you're aware of that are being sort of pulled
1: yeah i mean um so for instance in the in germany we have like we are currently debating and uh a new cyber security law basically um and i think what what's really obvious there is that there's a lot of input as our request mentioned basically by law enforcement security um intelligence services and so on so this side is very present there's no institution in theory there's in germany but in practice not really there, sh- there must be an institution that basically counteracts that um and acts on behalf of citizens so when it comes for instance to um finding uh, vulnerabilities zero day zero day exploits and so on it, this idea that This is only for law enforcement. I think very problematic. There should be another institution that basically acts on behalf of the citizens. And in all policies, these two sides, I mean, ideally, I wouldn't need any um, so much law enforcement power, but I mean, that's unrealistic. So let's say at least try for for balance at the moment, because I think um, cybersecurity is basically made with an interest for law enforcement and not much interest of citizens because these are then like delegitimized as being like hackers or activists and you know just like some weird people um who kind of overestimate certain technologies or what whatever. So I think there has to be a balance um and maybe also balance towards um the rights of citizens um and democracy and not towards the security state. I think, I like guess, an overarching principle of policies. I think.
2: Um, uh, I, I think it's important when we have these conversations to recognize that we are in a very data-rich environment and almost nothing that uh, even, even in our wildest dreams uh, when end-to-end description is rolled out through every service, we will be in a still incredibly data-rich and data-accessible environments that law enforcement and um, counter-terrorism agencies will be able to tap into. Um, there's this, and, and Linda goes into this really really nicely in your book, um, uh, the idea that we are going dark is one of the claims made by a lot of law enforcement agencies, which is absolutely madness, given how much data we spew out of our phones everywhere we go and every person we communicate with everywhere we travel. Encryption will only ever chip into that. There will always be um, uh, there will always be tech companies that can be subpoenaed. There will always be phones that can be confiscated. All this information, and and so so law enforcement actually has just incredible pickings of information now. And to to for their, for them to obsess about the small amount that's being protected by encryption, I think just misses the much bigger picture about the changes wrought over the last couple of decades.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion because it comes back to some of those uh, points about origins really in terms of who is responsible and, and is uh, sort of encryption and then that sort of individualization of privacy and individual responsibility or is it kind of a state or or other, you know, national geopolitical responsibility? And I'm curious of uh, your your reflections, Linda, on were the cypherpunks, I guess, successful in some of their missions? From what you've observed,
1: mm, I mean, I think they made a lot of like predictional ideas about the future, and I think they were right in the sense of like how digital technology is really is part of our daily lives. I think maybe they wouldn't think about like Twitter or something like that, but I mean they. Thing. I think they got that right. And I mean, as I said before, the, the first na- debate in the 90s was kind of successful in that encryption is not as regulated as it was like 30 years ago. So in that way, they were successful. And otherwise, maybe less, because I think they overall, I think they might not care too much about people who might not be interested in technology, I think that's in their worldview, that's just not really a question of like what an average citizen would do. um, And I think that was kind of a problem for them, because they, I think they overestimated like how much people would get into that. And maybe they also just didn't care, and I think questions of like inequality and inequality in access, the global South, but even in uh, in other countries. um. Like how, for instance, women feel still a different barrier to talk about technology and feel often less empowered. Um, I think they they didn't have a lot of sensitivities, so I think they were wrong, and I hope we can correct that
2: soon-ish. <laughs> where do you where do you see? Uh, so um, obviously, again, we, we study blockchain and cryptocurrency. How do you see these technological innovations? which I mean, from our desk, seem just overwhelming. Um, How how do they fit into the story of cryptography and encryption? Is this um, at their heart or the the fundamental infrastructure behind many of them and most of them is cryptography, which is being used not necessarily to keep things private, but just to keep things secure in public. Um, How do you see, do, do you see blockchain and crypto changing that environment, changing the politics of Cryptography in any way?
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I have the feeling that to change the politics, there would have to have be a there would have to be a way to really enforce kind of big tech companies that they allow end-to-end encryption and that they allow. I mean, at the moment, I mean, not even Facebook does not even allow end-to-end encryption, but also doesn't provide it in, um, in their messaging service. So I think, um, I think the politics are more there because, again, to come back to something Kelsey asked, I think, um, especially in the 90s, people thought, oh, this digital technology is a tool against capitalism and against these companies. And I think it, that's maybe not how it works. <laughs> so I think the politics they're really in the role of these companies and if we can find a way to um like control them regulate them better and also demand certain things and not just be like oh we lost the fight and we cannot encrypt and privacy is an illusion but really be like no these companies have responsibility um and we can hold them accountable
2: and they're strongly they're strongly pro- privacy or pro-encryption companies, at least relative to others out there. Like, for example, you you spent a lot of time talking about um, Apple's um, contests around particularly the um, encryption debate with the San Bernardino terrorist attack. So, so it's not like um, all companies are arrayed against this or all companies in Nestle are in bed with the state. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that companies are especially in favor of encryption if it allows them to have customers more and more like to sell that as a product but like especially google i mean it relies on unencrypted data that they can analyze right i mean they they scan your emails and therefore it has to be unencrypted um so i think that's also it's true that what i said before about like lumping all these companies together is probably not appropriate um, because for some it's okay like for apple Offering strong encryption is not such a big problem. Whereas for Google, it's really part of their business model to have a lot of unencrypted data and access to it. Um, so, yeah, probably, yeah, one, ha- one would have to distinguish between different companies and their interests and in their business models.
0: But the AIs will be well-trained to the sound of our voice and all of the nuance. <laughs> 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 Um, Chris, to your point about the developments in the blockchain space, we should definitely do a, a follow-up with some um, with some software engineers about kind of zero-knowledge proofs and ZK yeah. stack roll-ups. And...
2: So, so I haven't, until this conversation, I haven't sort of um, drawn that link. But um, So in the blockchain space, we talk a lot about cryptography, as, as I say, cryptography to secure things in public that you can see. So securing the Bitcoin blockchain yes, you protect your private key, but we also use cryptography to enforce um, in, in mining algorithms and so forth. But um, in the environment that we're in, we've actually had a sort of mini backlash against what you could call an encryption style technology in the cryptocurrency space, which is privacy coins. So this is a class of um, cryptocurrencies that um, prevent you from viewing the full transaction history of the network prevent outsiders from seeing mm-hmm. where um, uh, where transactions are made and how much and so forth. So Zcash Cash and Monero are, are, are the two main ones. But um, in that case, a number of regulators, a number of large banks have actually prevented um, centralized exchanges from selling those, from providing, um, uh, from allowing people to enter those markets, either because of regulatory um, risk, or in some cases, because of um, implicit demands by regulators themselves. So I think e- even in the blockchain space where we, where we, where we um, delight in the joy of the magical of crypto maths and how it's going to be the future, I, I think we're seeing precisely this politics that, um, that you so well explore in your book.
1: Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not to mention the scaling of that to geopolitical levels with central bank digital currencies and, and all of those things. Uh, but Linda, coming back to your work, I'd love to know uh, what else you're you're working on since your kind of initial book and then some of the ethnographic forays that we've discussed.
1: Yeah, I think as it all became clear, especially my last, thoughts, I think, um, yeah, I'm really interested in the politics of these big tech companies because I think they're a lot. To still also conceptualize of what their role for public and private life is, um, because I think other ideas we have of them just—I mean—they're not normal private companies, um, but they're neither like public institutions. So I think there's a lot work to done to be done in terms of understanding what's going on there, and, like conceptualizing it um, and really um, pointing out to what future questions could be so yeah i'm more and more interested in the politics of these big tech companies
0: awesome and where can people follow your work and and find you and i believe part of that is about a potential hard copy of your book that's coming out as well
1: yeah no so there's a paperback copy here coming out or just came out um which is more affordable than the hard one (laughs) um and uh, we can put um a link for like um um, for an offer, for I think twenty percent in the show notes, maybe, and then if people want to buy it, they can buy it there. Um, otherwise, I'm I'm kind of changing my jobs a lot, so best just to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> my email address does usually change every half year, um, so tr- Twitter
2: at Linda Muntz.
0: Awesome, Chris. Did you have anything to add to this discussion?
2: No, just just I highly commend um, Linda's book. It was a great read and 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 a um, surprisingly unexplored but incredibly important space in so much of the social science literature.
0: Thank you so much uh, to both Linda Monsees and Chris Berg. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you to our guests for listening into this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including that discount. And there is only shameless plugs when it comes to academic (laughs) publishing. And get in touch if you have ideas or feedback for the podcast on rmitblockchain.io.